kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> Kyle, that was good. That I'm going to critique that one. It's oh, okay. similar to what you've done in the past, except instead of putting the emphasis on Gordon, you put the emphasis on Kyle. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I feel like they're getting, to, to back you up, I think they're getting lazier and lazier. Well, you've said that in the past, and it, it continues to be true. Yeah. But maybe there will be a resurgence in your ability to... You know to... what? Starting right now, I'm going to start workshopping them. I'm going to, like, have rehearsals. Uh, I'm going to uh, have do table reads before these. And, Please. Um, yeah, they're, they're going to get intense. Yeah, you know, and me and the, you know, handful of listeners of this podcast, podcast will hold you to that, Kyle. So, All right, you heard it. You heard it here. So we are joined today by a really cool guest. He is a friend of mine. He's a r- really knowledgeable, excellent, professional music geek. Uh, you can hear him host JCC on Radio Free Brooklyn every Wednesday. That's correct, right? Every Wednesday? That's correct. Yeah, every Wednesday every- night. Every Wednesday night. Uh, and, you know, and all his shows are archived at Radio Free Brooklyn as well. And he has a wonderful podcast that I've actually guested on that's called Detoxicity. That's all about deconstructing male power dynamics and sort of thinking about being a man in a more modern way is how I would describe it. You can find that at uh, any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, and this is pretty cool. And we're going to talk about this. He was recently named one of the 40 most influential LGBTQIA plus music industry music executives. <laughs> that was excessive on my part, not on the title's <laughs> part, uh, by Billboard magazine. Uh, let's give a big welcome to Mike Joseph. Hello, Mike. Hey, hey, Kyle and Louie, what's happening? Mike, it's great to have you on. How you doing? It is great to be on. I'm doing okay, all things considered. Yeah, seriously. So uh, just before we get into any other, like, kick the jukebox nonsense, our album of the week this week is Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy, released in 1990, and we're very excited to get to that. Mike, so you just got named this wonderful honor from Billboard magazine of being an influential, you know, uh, music executive uh, who's, uh, you know, uh, identifies as queer, like... How did that all come about? How are you feeling about it? How do you feel kind of about like your general place in the, in the grand scheme of, of things music-wise? So to answer the first question first, I was approached by people at my company and they were like, well, how do you, you know, how do you feel about being on this Billboard Pride list? Do you want us to nominate you? And I was like, sure. Not thinking I was actually going to make it into the magazine. And then... Shortly after we had that discussion, we all went into self-isolation and I got an email saying, hey, you've made the list, blah, blah, blah. You have to sit for an interview and do all this stuff. And it didn't, some things don't feel real until they're right in front of you. So it was maybe a week or two ago or a little over a week ago and the magazine went live online and there my face was. And there my name was. And I was just like, whoa, this is like for real shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it feels like really legitimizing being 
recognized by a magazine like that, especially, you know, a magazine that like you probably have a history of, a publication of a history of, just yeah. being a fan of, a fan for of so music. Long, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I was I was a geek reading Billboard magazine when I was in high school. Yeah, uh, when I barely had like six or seven bucks to put together to buy a copy of the magazine. For so sure. it it really meant a lot to me from from several different perspectives, and just you know my journey to coming out and 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 you know acknowledging my queerness and being okay with it. Like it 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 definitely felt like it legitimized, justified my struggle in a lot of ways. That's wonderful to hear. And it's yeah. nice when that actually happens. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, because like, that does not happen for a lot of people. No, absolutely. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting, too, because there are industry magazines of all sorts. Some of those magazines are, like, read more than others by the general public. And because sure. there's so many fans of art and music out there, you know, there's Billboard, which is now being read by just tons of, you know, young LGBTQ music geek readers, you know, like, you know, like we were once upon a time, you know, right. and, uh, and, and they're going to see your face, you know, there. So now you're a bit of a, you're a bit of a, um, an influential figure for people, you know? Well, I mean, I, I hope that is the case. Yeah. Um, I've actually gotten already some, in, you know, some emails and, and stuff to just kind of like speak to people just about, you know, my journey. So uh, I'm excited to do that. And look, I mean, whatever I put out there, if somebody who's in the closet or struggling or even, you know, from a racial perspective feels like they can't move up the ladder because they're black, like if my story can help anybody progress or, or have the courage to, to move up, then, you know, I did my job. Yeah, for sure. Like, I would say that you did even more than your job. You went above and beyond because so many people in their industries, they're, if they're just like white, straight, cis people, they don't really have to be like too concerned about those factors. You know what sure. I mean? Sure. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a path already put in place for them, whereas there's not a path put in place for, you know, a lot of women or queer people or trans people or, you know, people of color. Um, so you have to look for examples in order to even understand that there is a way up the ladder. Yeah. And, and that's so much about, uh, I would say, what one of the things that this podcast is about is, we've discussed it before, it's sort of a recontextualizing of 20th century music history through our own lenses, which are, you know, somewhat like queer lenses. And we, we try to recontextualize them through a somewhat diverse lens as well. And so, so that being said, you've been a huge, you know, passionate evangelistic lover of music your entire life, right? <laughs> you know, evangelistic. I that, yeah, I do. I feel like that's the way to describe you, though, because, like, I would say for you, uh, just knowing you, music is really the way that you see the world, almost with, like, uh, religious fervor, using that in the nicest, most, like, benign yeah. and cuddly sense of the term and not in a, in a punitive, <laughs> angry way. Sure. You know, I just want to clarify that. I, I do not want to be the Jerry Falwell of music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and Parsh, sometimes I think that I am, but, uh, you know, I'm learning and growing and trying not to be, you know? Like, <laughs> so, like... I'll what? be the Jim Baker. I'll be the Jim Baker. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Kyle, you should be the Jim Baker of 
music and I should be the Tammy Faye. The Tammy Faye. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. Oh, I love this. I love yeah, this. This is a great analogy. I love this. <laughs> so what 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 do you think drew you to having such a love for for music as an art form? Uh, you know, and your sort of your progression with that growing up? That's kind of hard to say. I've just music has always been around. You know, I grew up in a house of music lovers and there were always records accessible. And I got a record player when I was five as a Christmas gift. So music has just always been in the picture. And going through this stuff that I went through, um, you know, my childhood and my teenagers and early adulthood were not great for a variety of reasons. But music has always been there as like a fallback. Like when other things have failed me, music has not failed me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been really fortunate to build a career in music. I started working in a record store when I was 17 years old. Yeah. I've just kind of been in that circumference ever since. So, you know, I mean, music has been really, really good to me for a variety of reasons. And that's my life. Yeah, I I really um have always admired since uh we met a few years ago kind of like your singularness of vision when it comes to what you like and what you want to expound upon the world. You know, as coming from an artist who's like very scattered <laughs> and that's led to being somewhat scattered professionally and somewhat scattered in terms of my interests. I've I've always really thought that was something that's a real attribute to your personality and the way kind of you process and think about the world. So I mean not to say that I'm not scattered. No, but you might be scattered <laughs> in other ways. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Long time fan. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I know. We may have to have you back for a full season. We've been discussing it. We'll see, how, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, so, I'm down. So, Mike, before we get into what we've all been listening to, and then we get into Fear of a Black Planet, just want to say you can follow us on all the social media of your choice. Just look up Kick the Jukebox. We're there. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I run all those accounts and guess what guys, I post on them. So you can follow us, you can interact with us. And if you like the sort of work that we're doing, we're really trying to amplify black voices this month and perhaps into the foreseeable future. We'd love for you to give a donation if you're enjoying our art to organizations that need it. And today I wanna talk about the HAF Project, spelled H-A-F, and it stands for the Heavenly Angel Fund. And uh, the Heavenly Angel Fund pays for car rides for black transgender women to get tested for COVID-19 and get care packages to black trans women who have been tested for the virus. And you can uh, donate to them and check them out at linktree slash M-I-Z-Z-J-U-N-E. So that's linktree slash Ms. June. Yeah, so please check them out. And that being said, you guys... What have y'all been listening to? Mike, go for it. What have you been listening to while we've been quarantined? Uh, this particular week, I've been listening to the new album by Phoebe Bridgers. Nice. Uh, she's pretty awesome. I, I really only found out about her maybe a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. uh, at least partially due to all kind of the Ryan Adams bullshit that was going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, she's fantastic. She has a new album that actually came out a couple days early. It was supposed to come out yesterday, Friday, and I think it ended up coming out on Wednesday. Nice. But she's got a new album out that's really good. Uh, I can't get enough of Fiona Apple. Uh, yes. Catch the Bolt Cutters is, is a great record. And John Legend has a new album that came out yesterday as well, which is really good. And his voice is just so, like, warm and kind of, you know, soothing to me. Yes. So it's been good self-care music. Yeah, this week. yeah we all need um, 
blankets and maybe uh maybe john legend's voice being a blanket is not such a bad thing right now in the in the in the world you know i mean the rest of john legend being a blanket is not a bad idea either that is completely (laughs) fair yes i will give it to you mike (laughs) absolutely i am on board no matter what the context there (laughs) kyle what about you yeah so i recently so you know, I work from home during the week and I'm usually here by myself. So a friend and I went up to do some hiking upstate last week and we went to Cold Spring, which is like an hour and a half north of the city. Yeah. And it turns out it was like the first day that the town was starting to open back up and we kind of walked around and I found a record store. No shit. I'm very jealous of you. And yeah. And so I found a bunch of things, but things I found was uh, this record that I have here by Bob James. Bob James. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I know that record. Yeah, and it has, I mean, look at this album cover. For those listening on the podcast, it's both the back <laughs> and front cover are a hot dog with the yellowest mustard I've ever seen in my life. I think I think that that was appropriate to talk about now because... Uh, Bob, well, for, talk about a warm blanket music. It's like just yeah. like the soothe, most soothing music you can listen to. But also, if we're going to talk about the history of sampling in hip hop, you, you you know you got to talk about Bob James. So yes, that's been uh, a lot of fun to listen yeah. to this week. Yeah, uh, Bob James. Just a bit of a side note, but personally, he wrote the theme song for Taxi, yep. uh, the sitcom Taxi, and I remember hearing that theme song literally in the womb. Like when I hear that theme song, I something like very primal happens where I like remember being like incredibly young. Yeah. And I was I was named after the character Louis De Palma from Taxi. Really? Uh, well, the deal is that I was really named after my great grandfather whose name was Louis, but my parents did it because they liked that character so much on the show. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, and Bob James Bob James is great regardless of whether he's you know been sampled for someone else or you're just listening on on his on his own he's he's or really if you're just looking at the album cover in silence <laughs> <laughs> is that what you recommend all our listeners do this week yeah 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 before you ever listen to it just sit with it for like an hour and a half just staring at the album cover yeah it absorb you, it, it by you hungry osmosis. it really is it will make you hungry it makes you hungry <laughs> yeah yeah if you're a hot dog fan yeah, yeah but true. if you're not a hot dog fan don't listen to this podcast <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> So this week, the only thing I want to talk about that's a music story from this week that I think is pretty funny is this week I was teaching a summer camp through Story Pirates for uh, six-year-olds, and it was this long, long via Zoom summer camp program that started at 10 and for me ended at three, and built in were some writing sessions where I didn't have to be like totally present where the kids would be writing. And then if they had a question, they could like, you know, raise their hand or get my attention and I would answer it. And these sessions would last for about half an hour. So we had a playlist, they were writing hero stories. So we had a playlist that was assembled for us that was like superhero themes, songs that have to do with heroic attributes, like I Will Survive was on it, which I thought was really fun. Eye of the Tiger was on it, which I thought was entertaining. But I was like, for the final session of the week, I was like, I'm going to do a little bit of DJing that's kid appropriate. And I ended up playing Cartoon Heroes by Aqua, (laughs) who we've discussed (laughs) on the show before. As, as being really underrated in terms of being really, really smart songwriters. And the kids went like crazy. Amazing. <laughs> and that's why I want to bring it up is like their ears perked up and they could tell that it was like 
A, good, and B, somewhat for them. <laughs> and right. they all started dancing around their rooms <laughs> to Aqua, that, like a big bunch of them to this song, which I'm sure they'd never heard before. Aqua is like kid catnip, seriously. <laughs> totally. <laughs> which is probably why I like it so much, because I have not progressed past that stage in my life in terms of what I care about and like. Uh, but terrible segue into Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy, which is an album that has so much depth to it and uh, really captures uh, a moment in like the entire you know black power movement is how i describe it for those of you who are less familiar with the album it was released in 1990 it was public enemy's third record you know and for me i just want to say right off the bat as this album came out when i was nine and I was growing up in Western Canada in a really, really white environment. And I'm kind of amazed now at how threatening this album was to whites in the 90s, because this is the sort of album now where I could completely recommend it to my mom and I think she would really like it. But I feel like in the 90s, she you know, would have been very, very threatened by this record. Um, and, and we'll get into why, but my only memory of any exposure to Public Enemy at the time was watching the Fly Girls on In Living Color dance to 911 <laughs> as a joke. Oh, man, that's... Well, I was going to say that I picked for my song, Welcome to the Terror Dome, and that's where I was introduced to a lot of music, but uh, specifically that song was watching the Fly Girls dance to that song. Yeah, oh, on, wow. on In Living Color, absolutely. And it's interesting because In Living Color was somewhat disguised as like a fairly benign sketch comedy show at the time, but I think was a really, really phenomenal delivery system to communicate like black issues and black causes to like a wider audience. And black music. Yeah. yeah, and music. Yeah, well, you know, music being part of that package for sure. Right, right, we're going right, to talk right. about how like this album is clearly a delivery system to like really discuss the entire history of the black power movement and where it's going at the time, you know? Um, so yeah. So, so I think that it's interesting that I really vividly remember that. And it was the first time, you know, I must've been 10 or 11 at the time learning that 911 and city services maybe didn't work for all people in the same way. And hearing it while these like beautiful women are dancing to this song, you know, very, uh, very like aggressively, which I think is just like, it, it left a real impression on me. And I think is important to talk about with where we're at right now in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and what's what's been happening over the last few weeks. So thanks for letting me vomit all that out <laughs> mike um so you you chose this album we sort of had a discussion about what we were going to talk about this week and this is one of the things you want to talk about uh wh what does this album mean to you and why so when fear for black planet came out i was 13 yeah just a little older um, than me yeah yes so i was definitely kind of coming into my consciousness at that point and even though I couldn't articulate a lot of the things that Public Enemy was talking about in their music, I definitely felt it. And 1990, sort of the years 1989, 1990 were sort of a pivotal moment, at least in New York, in terms of uh, racial unrest. There were quite a few incidents during that time that really kind of marked like a peak almost uh, in, in terms of, of racial unrest in New York City between the Black community and the Jewish community, between yeah. the Black community and the Korean or Asian American community. And Public Enemy just kind of captured that unrest and were able to sort of digest it and put it out in the music that 
sounded good regardless of the context and had appeal to people outside of the people that it was meant to, you know, appeal to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, you know, a record so aggressive, so militant could appeal to, you know, white college students and alternative radio and people who are hardcore into hip hop and 13 year old kids even, uh, I think speaks volumes to not only their talent, but their, their overall message. And, you know, 30 years later, a lot of what they're talking about is still very much in the public discussion today. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, almost unfortunately so. That's sort of yeah. something about music, that specifically, I would say, from the 20th century, from a, like a Black social consciousness perspective, is it's just really tiring and sad, but also somewhat affirming to listen to genres of music that span back all the way to the beginning of the 1900s yeah. and to be hearing the same themes repeated over and over and over again. You know? Yeah, but I had a discussion a few days back uh, on another podcast and we were talking about Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday, which was written, I think, in 1939. Yep. And how that song is still very applicable today. Yeah, absolutely. A century later. A, a century later. And this album, which is now if I do my math right in my head, because I'm bad at stuff like that, is now 30 years old. <laughs> 30 years, I, which makes me feel very old. I know, but we don't need to be worried about that because age is just a number and we're going to live you. forever. So, <laughs> Who are you the best? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, just a little bit of a background about this, this band for those who might be a little less familiar with them. So they were formed... Basically, when Chuck D, who's the, the front man uh, of this band, uh, he met producer Hank Shockley. Uh, they had a radio show together at Adelphi University in 1982. Uh, sorry, Adelphi. Adelphi University. Adelphi. Adelphi University. And, <laughs> and I think that this is interesting because I just want to kind of give a shout out to like accessible radio, you know, just being like a sort of, it can be a wonderful breeding ground petri dish for people of like minds to meet each other and to form like creative allegiances and it's important and i think it's as important now that as it was in 1982 when they met each other so they recorded uh, a song uh chuck t was was encouraged to rap by by hank shockley and they recorded a song called public enemy one and then from there they founded public enemy with uh, Flava Flav, who's like their rapper hype man, Professor Griff, who's another rapper with them, and Terminator X, who was their turntablist. And then, you know, Rick Rubin signed them really early on, pretty much right after that, that single came out. Uh, and he signed them to Def Jam Records, who were home at the time uh, of such acts like Run DMC, who I think at the time, they felt like Public Enemy kind of fit into like, that harder rap sound that Run DMC embodied at the time, but Public Enemy were way, way, way more political than yeah. Run DMC ever were. I will yeah. offer a slight correction there, Louis. Please, yeah, please uh, do it. Run DMC, me all you want. Yeah, Run yeah. DMC was not signed to Def Jam. Uh, they were actually on Profile Records, oh. um, but they were managed by... Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. That's right. That's um, right. Rubin yeah. was their, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rubin and, was their manager and their producer yeah. as well. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Public Enemy didn't necessarily start off super political the way they evolved. I mean, their first album was pretty, was, you know, run DMC-ish. Mm-hmm. But uh, they found their political footing 
pretty quickly um, and, and realized that that was kind of the way that they needed to go. So that's sort of the, their origins. And they have a related production team that's really important to talk about for this album, you know, called The Bomb Squad, uh, which was headed up by uh, the Shockley brothers, Hank and Keith, who started their careers as turntablists, which I think is important because basically Fear of a Black Planet is like a, I would say it's like a modern art uh, turntablist collage that takes a whole bunch of different music samples and, you know, samples from Black thought leaders, uh, speeches by Black thought leaders, and sort of recontextualizes it in this kind of cacophonous, like, (laughs) aggressive tirade uh, that's at once familiar, but is new as well, which is sort of, you know, the definition of collage. So, you know, not to get too, like, pretentious, sort of simplistic <laughs> art schooly about it. And this album has over, has between 150 and 200 samples on it and came out before there were any laws that, you know, led to sampling being something that was monetizable, which is basically how these guys were allowed to get away with it. And, you know, it occurred during what's known as the golden age of hip hop, which was like 87 to 92, when this sort of work was being done, but no one had to pay any royalties because the music industry hadn't caught up with it yet. And that's also why we will never see any of these songs in mu- in uh, movies or TV ever again. <laughs> I know, which right. is such a shame. Yeah. yeah, although I did just, this is a bit of a tangent, but they used um, Eggman by the Beastie Boys, which has several samples in it at the end of Watch the HBO Watchmen series. Wow. Which surprised me. And that was me. 75% of the budget. well actually it really could have been because it was a grand superhero epic that felt like really economically smartly done so yeah you might be right about that we really need this beastie boy scene (laughs) we want to hear Eggman at the end of this show (laughs) but yeah so let's get into it I think it's it is time let's talk about Let's talk about some of the songs and that'll allow us to get into why this album is so important. So Kyle, tell us tell us what your choice was, Kyle. So I picked Welcome to the Terror Dome and that might have been, other than Fight the Power, that was probably the first Public Enemy song, I mean, other than Fight the Power that I was really familiar with and listened to a lot as a kid. And I think we already mentioned it, but I, I had like the first two seasons of uh, In Living Color on DVD when I was a kid (laughs) and I just watched it incessantly and I have such a distinct memory of hearing this song and like my jaw dropping and another thing you know when I was a kid I don't think I I I, then I did some research and knew Public Enemy was political but I would not be able to like speak in any sophisticated way about anything in particular that they were saying so I think it's just a testament to why again this such a militant and ex- explicitly militant and aggressive album was able to like be you know go platinum and you know be embraced by like you know young suburban kids and college kids because I remember listening to this ki- as a kid and just being like this is like a fucking bop yes and I loved it and yeah the first experience was just which which Wayans brother was the DJ I can't remember uh, uh, Sean. Sean Wayans. Yeah. yeah, the young, youngest one. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, just seeing Sean Wayans and then the, the Fly Girls on, on In Living Color, you know, 
rock into the song. a little bit of welcome to the terror dome there so yeah so kyle uh, maybe you want to elaborate a little more on why you think this struck you so much as a kid and, um, and into being an adult as well you know why this is so important to still be listening to well one i think just like what a showcase of regardless of what he's saying which is obviously extremely important like what a showcase of just chuck diaz like an incredible mc on this song i mean he's just like slaying it and then also the like kind of throbbing like sample swell that like goes on throughout this song is just like so enchanting and and just like what an intro to the song too like this is a journey (laughs) it's like amazing it's like it gets you just hype it's just like it's great (laughs) so at the time that this album came out i think this is really apt and very cool the new york times review described the production on it as being a cacophony that resembles just the noise of living in an urban neighborhood and how that noise in itself can be a an impressive tool that mm-hmm. not having any peace in itself can you know make one unable to reflect on on their situation and that the 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 production mixed with Chuck D's rapping it is a battle almost between the sampling and what he is trying to say and in itself aesthetically is very much about like the struggle of like the the young black man at the time which which I think is is interesting for the whole album and specifically for this song you know the whole song to or the whole album really feels like it's like a train of thought exercise and it's really really dense but all of the songs really leap around in terms of in terms of context and this one i think this is something important to talk about this one starts by being very much about like the contentious relationship at the time between the black community and the jewish community in new york city so at the time public enemy had to fire professor griff because he made a statement to the Washington Times, which in itself is is a right-wing newspaper that's going to completely misconstrue anything anyone's going to say anyway, that Jews were the bane of all evil in the world, is basically what he said. I might be paraphrasing a little bit. And then it forced everybody in Public Enemy, including Chuck D, who is the, you know, the leader of the group, into this like contentious issue where their management didn't feel they'd be able to get signed unless they fired Professor Griff. 
So then they made a big to-do to fire Professor Griff, and then Professor Griff joined the group later on and apologized for this. I feel like there's just like, with what happened, and this is early 1990, but this is a, a real lack of, there's a real lack of nuance, nuance to the way this all went down that I feel uh, is actually being repeated right now with certain factions of the Jewish community and their relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement, which is one of the reasons why I, I personally want to bring it up. And like, Mike, do you just remember as a kid, like there was some, there was some shit going down at the time between yeah. the two communities, yeah. I mean, and there always has been, particularly the more orthodox uh, Jewish community. Yes. You know, I grew up near Crown Heights, mm -hmm. which was at the time, pretty much split in half between black and Americans. And it still pretty much is. Yeah. <laughs> between black Americans, particularly, well, not even black Americans, mainly black people from the Caribbean mm -hmm. and uh, Orthodox Jews. And it was always contentious. And I remember the whole public enemy thing going down in, you know, in 89, actually leading up to Fight the Power, which I'll talk about a little later. Yeah. And, you know, the statement progressive, excuse me, the statement Professor Griff made was absolutely wrong. Sure. Um, it was it was definitely yeah it, it, it was a, a, a messed up statement um but it just turned into this huge firestorm where it's like okay is public enemy anti-semitic when the person that signed them to def jam rick rubin is jewish their mm -hmm. i believe their uh manager at the time was jewish you know it, it, and unfortunately what P professor grip who is more sort of like tertiary member of the group said reflected that ended up reflecting badly on the whole group and Chuck D as the leader of the group had to take it on the chin and I think what he initially did is he fired Professor Griff and then he actually broke up Public Enemy and then reformed Public Enemy without Professor so it was just like this big mess of stuff yeah and, yeah like he he like was basically trying his best to deal with it but it became yeah. like overly complex yeah. yeah and I mean the the contentious relationship actually like got worse as time went on because I think in like the fall of 1990 there was a situation in Crown Heights where a young black kid got hit by a car yes. driven by uh, you know an orthodox Jewish person and it led to riots in Crown Heights uh, led to a, a yeshiva student from Australia getting stabbed to death mm -hmm. I'm removed enough from that part of Brooklyn that I don't know how contentious the relationship is in 2020 but I do know that in the early 1990s, it was quite contentious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to say just uh, with uh, this week specifically, this is something that's affected me, me this week in a way that's made me really angry. I've seen popping up online specifically now that we're a little more of a global community in terms of us all being connected online. Some now former friends of mine talking about how the Black Lives Matter movement is anti-Semitic and their reasoning for it is like incredibly slipshod. It feels like an incredibly divisive tactic to wedge, uh, put a wedge apart between two groups of people who should like have had somewhat similar experiences Absolutely. Um, and should be considered allies to each other. And I feel like this is a voice that comes specifically from like the conservative Jewish movement that is meant to divide and conquer because there's something specifically about more just and equitable society being very threatening to them. And I, I don't feel like I'm an expert in 
getting into that. But what I can say is that, you know, some friends of mine sent me some articles this week, which I was like, I will read them to engage in conversation with you. And they were really like from certain like, you know, Orthodox rabbis and they were fairly, they were odious. They were really uh, gross. It led to me severing ties with some of these people this week. Uh, I know that this is sort of a difficult thing with, uh, with a lot of Jews right now who feel like this is an important movement to get behind. And I think that this, this sort of line of thinking does stem back specifically to this era and the relationship between like the Anti-Defamation League, which is a Jewish-run organization, uh, their relationship to rap music at the time, which, you know, rap music, especially something, people like Public Enemy, yeah, it's it's very messy and it is a very train of thought and there's a lot of different views expressed all the time in it. But I would argue that that is the same for a lot of punk as well. And the only real difference, the reason why there's so much scrutiny put into this you know, into this music at the time was because of the color of the skin of the people oh, that were doing 100%. it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never, I've not experienced too much direct contact with the Orthodox Jewish community. Most of my, you know, friends are secular Jews. Yeah. But uh, I mean, and I think there's a reason why I don't know too many people, you know, uh, that are, that are Orthodox. Most exposure that I had to that was sort of right after the election of mm-hmm. 2016, yep. because I, I had a friend who was a, a former Orthodox Jew, and they had just come out of the closet and, you know, was exploring exploring their sexuality. So it was a very weird place for, for them to be in as a former Hasidic Jewish queer person who is now, I believe, a trans, trans or non-binary person. And right after the election, you know, I'd read, read their posts and see the comments from people who are clearly still in, you know, the Orthodox community and just like yeah. recoil um, yeah. at, at how like, you know, it's like, you know, you're a minority too. Um, and particularly yeah. the rise of, of neo-Nazism the, these last few years should, uh, you know, kind of give you a little religion, and no pun intended, on like <laughs> why you should not be supporting Donald Trump. Agreed. I I do agree with that. And I feel like there's something about it, at least for me, maybe because it's more personal coming from my fellow Jews, that it like makes me like physically ill to read. And it's very, it's really, really difficult. So, you know, and these are, these are, and the main reason why I wanted to like talk about this a little bit in relationship to this song is mainly because I feel like this is this is a really complex conversation and there's nuance and there's degrees of oppression and it's okay to talk about those things in those terms and not put blanket statements over any group of uh, people, you know, when talking about this. And I feel like all things considered, this was a really, if we look at like the discussion around public enemy and around rap music in general and its relationship to the Anti-Defamation League in the early 90s, that was a really messy messy and divisive beginning to the discussion. And I'm hoping that we can look towards that as being an example of how to move beyond that and have more equitable conversations around this, you know, especially with artists like Public Enemy who clearly have so much to say for everybody to be listening to, you know, it's, there's no simplistic racism here that's happening in the song or in the album, or, you know, for that matter, just to address it, they were accused of being homophobic as well. And on this album, the, the line about homophobia relates to how they find 
gay sex confusing and how, and then it sort of goes into this tangent that's sort of an AIDS paranoia tangent. And I don't, you know, I think that putting that in the basket of being like intensely homophobic is like really wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, really I, I'm, wrong. Yeah, I'm conflicted about that. You know, it's literally one line in yeah. a song. Yeah, and I, I can, you know, young, a lot of young black men in that era were virulently homophobic. Certainly, um, and a lot of that was rooted in AIDS paranoia. Sure, but. You know, and, and we, you know, you recently posted something on your Facebook page about people who say problematic things or do problematic things, but do problematic things necessarily make a person or the overall message of a person problematic, you know, like in total? I'm a queer black guy, and I, that line from Fear of Black Planet still stings a little bit, yep. but in terms of public enemies, overall message about black empowerment and giving voice to a lot of issues that weren't being heard at that point. Like, I still love Public Enemy. Yeah, I mean, I have a Public Enemy tattoo. So it's like- <laughs> I didn't know you, you know, had a Public Enemy tattoo. <laughs> I have, now you know. Um, <laughs> but it, it's like, you know, it, you, you have to give people, particularly younger people, a little bit of space to occasionally be wrong and fucked up and then correct them. I, I, I have not heard or known of anything that Chuck D has said since then that has been homophobic. And, you know, it was a moment in time. It was a different time, particularly when compared to 2020. Sure. Um, and again, like you can't let, you shouldn't let uh, one line obscure the entire message of something. Yeah. And it's, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And if you think of this album as something like political manifesto and uh, a like really compelling one at that, I don't think there's any, you know, like any political manifesto from anyone that is meant to be, you know, consumed and adopted in its entirety. Each sure. aspect of his ideology and public enemy's ideology should be dis discussed and dissected. And especially as time goes on, you know, there will be parts that ring true. Like there are definitely parts that still ring true. And then other parts that we can say we can do without that. Yeah. And that's how we move forward as a society and how culture moves forward as well. For sure. It's, yeah, yeah it's not, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we pick and choose and we take and we keep and we get rid of, and we, you know, uh, improve upon a, a lot of different aspects of culture and ideology. Yeah, absolutely. I, I very much agree. Uh, so, this next segment that we're the next song we're going to talk about i just want to give a trigger warning if you want to stop listening because uh we are going to discuss not in any graphic detail but we are going to discuss a rape uh in this next segment it involves the song that i chose which is revolutionary generation let's give a little bit of a listen to it and then let's let's talk about it Take a stand, understand it. 
It is nice to hear some of that Jude on June 20th, 2020. So the the reason why I wanted to go with this one is that I feel like this song musically is very representative of the era that it came out in. You know, this is the song that leans most towards being like a new Jack Swing song on the album. And I, I kind of love that about it because it cements it so firmly in 1990, but it also, you know, as we've already been discussing, deals with a lot of themes that I think are really important to talk about in the current moment. So this song is mostly about elevating the status of African-American women in, in the black power movement is primarily what it is about and also about like, the past mistreatment of African-American women. But then it also delves a little bit into, uh, I would say the way that young people are treated, you know, young young black people are treated by society. And then, and then also it gets into the, the crack epidemic a little bit as well, which I think is just, it's just amazing. I just think this whole album is an incredible learning tool for anybody that really wants to understand what's been going on and why this current moment of protest is so important and that these hardships are, are nothing new. Uh, and like, there's so much already in the song. And then one of the big subjects of the song is um, the case of Tawana Brownlee, who, or sorry, Browley, who was a young uh, African-American teenager who was raped repeatedly by the police uh, at least by several members of the police and maybe several other people as well, in November of 1987. And she wasn't believed by the authorities. And then it became this whole, like, early 90s, like, really odious, terribly racist media circus of a, like, did she or didn't she case where she was, if, I, I, if I'm remembering the event correctly, she was being advocated for by um, Al, Re Reverend Sharpton. Yes, uh, Al Sharpton, who really wanted to see this young woman see some justice. And instead, you know, when she gave a statement, she wasn't really able to explain what had happened because she had been traumatized and they never really got another proper statement from her. And it meant that no one was ever prosecuted for these crimes. And it didn't lead to the discussion that it should have that it should have led to. And she ended up appearing with Sharpton in uh, the Fight the Power video, which is which is interesting. But it's, I'm wondering, you know, at the time, this was already a case that was a few years old, but this is such a good expression of like, how rightfully angry people should be that that was handled so incredibly in such a racist way by by the courts and by the police at the time. Yeah, I mean, Tawana Brawley is an interesting case. Yeah. I remember, um, so I grew up in New York and I moved away for a couple of years and moved back in September of 1987. So it was right before this thing happened, um, which I believe was in November of 1987. Yeah. There's still, I think for a lot of people, doubt 
sure. as to whether that actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand and I, I realize and I recognize that there are lots of people who are sexually assaulted that do not report it to the authorities. And, you know, I'm certainly a, a, a believe victims person, but this also doesn't totally smell right. Uh-huh. Sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in this case, you know, I, I, I feel like you probably have to give the victim the benefit of the doubt. But also, again, like something doesn't totally smell right. And there were a lot of people who initially supported her that kind yes. of walked away from the story the more it started to stink a little bit. For sure. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and I do know that, you know, as we went to the 90s, like, um, you know, it, it really was, you know, the, the thing that put Al Sharpton on the map. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I found out about Al Sharpton. And there were uh, several artists uh, ranging from Public Enemy to TLC that supported her or shouted her out in songs and stuff like that. So it's just like it's it's super complicated. And, you know, even now, I mean, 1987, so that's 33 years ago. Still not really sure what side I fall on in this case. Um, yeah. I mean, not that I have to fall on a side. No, that's the yeah. thing, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think that I read, i trying to remember who the quote was from. I should have written it down and I apologize. But while reading about this case in advance of getting into this podcast for today, so, uh, someone said at the time that the major issue wasn't whether she was telling the truth or not. It was actually about the fact that this did happen to young women of color fairly often and oh, yeah. that this the discussion was clearly not happening around the issues like and that the the actual case the actual specifics of the case are less important than having the discussion about why is this happening in a systemic way right and I, and I think a lot of it too was um of course because you know exactly right there's a lot of doubt swirling around even now we don't know exactly what happened in that case but yeah. before any of the investigation had been concluded before any we really knew anything for certain the there there was a clear bifurcation in the media as oh, yeah. to there was one side saying absolutely this happened and one side saying absolutely this didn't happen mm-hmm. and just the fact that that's the impulse especially the absolutely this didn't happen impulse this is obviously like what like 20 Five years before Me Too. So that impulse being exposed was really important, regardless of the actual facts of the right. case. Right. Yeah. I hear you there. And it's it's a cool, it's a cool, um, it's a, just an interesting to be thinking about that in terms of I feel what's literally been happening in the last few weeks where we've had so many men in certain power positions being outed specifically on Twitter as being abusive. And then the, there being this like major trial by like trial by the people <laughs> moment on Twitter where certain people are believing the victims of these crimes and certain people are advocating for the, you know, for the, for, for those who are perpetrating these crimes. And it's just like this giant discourse that there's no real roadmap to how to discuss it properly. And I think that that, you know, that's been happening for a really long time and it's important oh, yeah. to remember that, you know? And it's also oh, just yeah. exposes the how it can be uh, difficult sometimes to extrapolate from individual incidents larger systemic issues that exist separate from or above any individual incident. So, you know, I think it's all, always, you know, it's tough because you want to make systemic issues real for people because, you know, numbers aren't as persuasive as individual incidents 
incidents, but then once you get down into those individual incidents, it, it become it becomes a lot more complex and nuanced each, you know, you know, each incident. Yes, agreed. I mean, and speaking of which, best segue that's ever been on the show. Let's listen to a little bit of Fight the Power. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. for do the right thing yeah it was uh written for the spike lee joint yeah the right thing uh do the right thing is in my estimation one of the best movies i i always hesitate i don't want to say best do the right thing is one of my favorite movies of all time i think it's also one of the most culturally important movies of all time and i don't know that there has been a marriage of song and movie as well placed as do the right thing and fight the power it just encapsulates heat and anger and frustration and loudness and just and like it's the perfect distillation of every emotion felt in the movie and even you know humor uh in in, in some ways it's just all of that like wrapped into one neat bow um, and, and something about that that I think is interesting is there's some conflicting stories about the discussions around this song. So Spike Lee claims that he always wanted something that's like incendiary and aggressive for for the for the film. But according to Public Enemy in an interview with Chuck D, he said that Spike Lee originally approached him and said, "I think what I want is a like some sort of rap version of Raise Every Voice and Sing." And, okay. and Chuck D was like, no, I think that with the tone of the film, you're going to want something different. And then he, they kind of came back with Fight the Power. It's such a good, it ended up being such a good marriage of film with the song. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's to me just perfect. Still probably on my list of like top 10 favorite songs ever. Yeah, I, I, again, like I just, I, I think Do the Right Thing is an essential film. Um, and as we've said with the previous songs, with the message that's still very relevant in 2020, I mean, here we are, you know, uh, four weeks into essentially an uprising. Yeah. 
and Fight the Power. You could soundtrack everything that's going on right now to Fight the Power. Yeah, you know, so much so that the Spike Lee directed video for this was a rally. It was a rally that was created by the by Public Enemy specifically for the video that is really powerful to watch now and just sort of gives this like current of protest through through the the feel of uh, from from you know 1989 when it was filmed to present day and i believe the video was filmed on eastern parkway in brooklyn so uh was it interesting yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's so interesting yeah i think the video too i mean obviously the song but um i was just watching that again today and also, I recently watched Do the Right Thing again. That, I've probably seen that movie maybe more than any other movie in my life. I love that movie so it's much. Such, it's a fantastic movie. It just is always amazing. And you, it, another movie that you see something different every time you watch it, no question. But um, yeah, in the video directed by Spike Lee, um, I think it's just a really, it's kind of the ushering in of a new era of like black activism. It's this interesting contrast and also melding between the like early civil rights era because the video starts with scenes from the March on Washington and then Chuck D kind of saying like, fuck that, we're not going to, we're going to essentially do something more aggressive than that. But then also like in the crowd, you have these, all these pictures of like great black figures and then you see like a philip randolph and you see uh, martin luther king and it's just kind of it's just such an interesting the the dialogue within the 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 like black activist community is so interesting particularly at that time because there is this militancy of course but also this like recognition and indebtedness to like the people from the civil rights movement so it's like it's this like live dialogue happening, which is like so interesting. Yeah. I also want to bring up the fact that fight the power was almost like prescient in a way. Like there had been some very high profile uh, cases of uh, racial inequity in New York city leading up to 1989. Uh, the ones I remember specifically beyond Tawana Brawley are uh, Michael Griffith in Howard beach um, where he was chased by a gang of white youths and got ended up getting hit by a car. Um, there was uh, Eleanor Bumpers, who was a uh, mentally ill woman who was shot by the police, I believe, in 1986. And then right after Fight the Power came out in like the late summer of 1989, uh, Yusuf Hawkins, who was a 16 or 17 year old black kid, went into Bensonhurst to buy a used car and was killed by a, a group of Italian Americans who, you know, didn't want to see him in their neighborhood. So it's like Fight the Power kind of saw into the future. Mm hmm. Almost. And, you know, again, the years like 1989 through through like the riots through like 1992 were very fraught with um, uh, tension um, amongst all, I think, ethnicities uh, in New York City. And, you know, at a time when, you know, here we are in 2020 and we talk about um, gentrification in those days, Brooklyn, Brooklyn and Queens in particular uh, were very like sectioned off by ethnicity. So there was, you know, you couldn't step foot in the other neighborhood. And, you know, it was those conditions that created a song like Fight the Power or that contributed to the creation of a song like Fight the Power. Yeah. And, and then also just to think of it in a larger kind of scope of what they were doing artistically, it sort of took all of those 
elements, those social elements, and put them kind of, I would say, into a type of mix with their own relationship to media as well. I just, I just feel like it's worth just like touching on that it's a conversation with itself about using uh, black media in order to create something new, which we've talked about before, and then also how black media and how a song like this relates to the larger like mainstream media and and symbolism you know they specifically call out elvis in the song as being an appropriator which for a lot of people was a new idea at the time well, they, they don't call him an appropriator they call me racist yes uh, you're right i'm sorry he's a racist and right. they say which, and they say the same about john wayne, john wayne as well. yeah yeah and i think the elvis the elvis there's been a long conversation in the black community about whether elvis was a racist or not Sure. Dating back to the 50s and 60s. And that's pretty much been debunked. Sure. Um, and I believe even Chuck D has walked that line back. Yeah. Uh, publicly. Uh, John Wayne is still a motherfucking racist. Yeah, no, I was about yeah. to say. Yeah, no need. Yeah, no, uh, no dispute about that one. Yeah, there's no debunking on of John Wayne. <laughs> and and um, the, other, the other thing, too, about the John Wayne idea is just that, like, it was such a flip on the way that most, I would say most people in the country at the time were thinking about their culture. Yeah, that you know, the Chuck D is saying through that line, we don't need to be glorifying someone who's a film hero for killing people of color, indigenous peoples, and that that's a, a discussion that I feel that as like somewhat liberal people we've been having now for like at least a few years. <laughs> um, we're reevaluating a lot of you know entertainment tropes, but at the time, I would say is a really radical idea. Oh, it was super radical. I yeah. believe. Chuck might have been one of the first people to ever put that into a conversation in art. Yeah, you know, and and it's time, I think, for all of us to be, I feel like that's so much part of, like, I think the responsibility of, like, the white allies currently in the situation is, like, I think we need to really be reevaluating what we're digesting in terms of art and culture and what we're showing our kids and what we're saying is okay and uh, ignoring the roots, you know, of those things. You know, like, just, like, I think John Wayne is, like, such a great starting point to also, like, talk about how, like, you know, Mickey Mouse, for example, is, like, you know, basically... Uh, a cartoon character based on minstrelism, you know, and that's something that we need to at least be having a discussion about with our kids if we're showing the Mickey Mouse cartoons. Sure. And, you know, how, like, I've been thinking a lot recently just because it's been brought up with me in my geek circles about Batman <laughs> and how Batman is this white, rich man who dresses up in a costume and uh, beats up the, the, the underprivileged. You know, like that's basically who Batman is. And how I think we need to reevaluate these tropes and think about like uh, how healthy they are moving forward as a society and if they can either be reinvent- reinvented or if they need to be done away with. Like, right. you know, when it comes to John Wayne, for example, I don't know how much relevancy he has in 2020 anyway, and if that really needs to be a discussion. You know, Batman is still such this huge part of our pop culture that maybe it's worth having a bigger discussion about, or maybe it's worth doing away with him as well. And but John is- Wayne kind of was the, 
he was the Batman of 1989 and 90. He's, like, he's certain, he was well, untouchable. Batman was the know? Batman of 1989. Right, but exactly. Wayne, yes, but, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was another Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but John Wayne definitely had that, like, hold in the, in the cultural firmament in terms of the imagination. Right. You know, and yeah, so I think it is really similar. And, like, you know, so, so these are interesting conversations to be having right now. And then musically, let's just talk about this for a second. This song samples, among other, like, really important, big, uh, bl- you know, black, black music, North Star, Polar Stars. <laughs> You're getting it! You're getting it! Oh, oh my God. That you was know. great. Yeah, okay, we'll see how that comes out in the editing. Uh, <laughs> uh, they sample Trouble Funk, who uh, I love. They sample the Dramatics. They sample James Brown. They sample Africa Bombada, the electric beats of Africa Bombada in this song as well, which is just like such a tapestry of important black musical influences in the song. I mean, talking about the Bomb Squad and what they did, they were just geniuses. They were like mad scientists. Mm -hmm. And to hear music, to be constructing a song and constructing a song out of like bits and pieces of seven or eight different songs... I, I think is just a, a crazy, crazy talent. Being able to have this library of music in your head and kind of be like, okay, well, this goes with this and this goes with this. Like thinking of a song that we didn't discuss, Brother's Gonna Work It Out, and buried in the mix, like the guitar solo at the end of Let's Go Crazy by Prince runs throughout that entire song. It's, it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous to, to kind of hear that in retrospect and be like, imagine like sitting in a studio, like hearing, putting this speech again and be like, you know, I'm going to take this guitar solo and just drop it right here. (laughs) Yeah, and part of their process, something that Chuck D said about the production of this album is he said that, like, with the experiments that they tried, he feels that, like, 95% of the time, everything sounded like garbage (laughs) and that the 5% is the stuff that he used. But or that they used on the you know in the 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 bomb squad used for producing the album, but that also is just to show how wildly inventive they were being and how they were really trying so many different techniques to make this work and get to where they wanted it to be, and how it's such a shame what happened I feel with with sampling laws in terms of the progression specifically of hip hop and how hip hop was forced by necessity to simplify itself in a way that led to some really cool production. I'm not um, denying that. Sure. But this is really, you know, was such a, such an incredible age. And I wish, I just wish more records sounded like this. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's such an interesting point too, because like, you know, the argument against sampling was like, oh, you're not, this isn't music. You're just stealing. Once sampling laws became so much stricter it really did become a lot less Um, musical because you're just using one sample and then just putting a beat over it whereas this is like like postmodern like uh art like this is like you know this is um i mean it is truly a collage i mean it's a it's a description that gets used a lot but like you know each individual sample you have to like really squint to see it because you have this wall of sound that is so much uh, some of more than the uh, some of its parts you know it's like it is in the truest sense they have made like it's it's its own thing right it's not puff daddy taking 45 seconds of i'm coming out by diana ross and you know 
Yeah. You can more problems out of it. It's, right. Or, ex- or we yeah, all and- freak out because finally someone used while my guitar gently weeps. Like, you right. know, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and then just, just to sort of, I think, put a little button on this part of the conversation for the do the right thing version of this song, which is somewhat different than the album version of the song, you know, Branford Marsalis, who's a a saxophonist plays on it, but he has a, just, he had an interesting take on working with them where he said that they at the time didn't label themselves as musicians, which he called refreshing because he feels it led to a collaboration where these guys weren't pretentious and were willing to be open to collaboration. But then what it also led to, which is so cool, is he did a sax solo for them, and then they basically like cut and spliced it into the song in a way that he would have never thought of. For And it's, it's sort of an interesting way to think about the dialogue between uh, a jazz saxophonist and what the bomb squad were trying to do at the time for hip hop. There's some right. similarities, but there's actually more of kind of a, a a clash and then a and then a meld happening back and forth between the two art forms, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think the com- the comparison gets made a lot, and it's a little hack, but I think it is perfect in this place. In this, you know, like the hip hop punk rock you know, comparisons get made a lot, but you want to talk about non-musicians making something that musicians would never have ever thought of. And that lack of formal training, but, you know, just insane hard work and musical knowledge just manifests itself in something totally unique. I think this is like a perfect example. And, you know, it's the same in punk rock and it's the same, you know, same here. Yeah, and, and personally for me, if I lost my ability to compare hip hop to punk rock, then I would lose ninety percent of my musical <laughs> vocabulary. Yeah. So you know, never speak ill of that comparison sure, again. Sure, on the show. yeah, sure, you. sure. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about this record. Oh, I, my pleasure. I hope to be invited back. <laughs> yes, Mike. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I love that you're saying that on the air. So that, yeah. No, 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 no. Of course, we're going to have you back. There's so much. I know that this is only the tip of like your knowledge when it comes to uh, a lot of the music that you love. I do want to ask the three of us. I think this might be a fun way to end this one. If we're trying to talk to somebody right now who maybe is like newer to understanding the black struggle or is trying to uh like educate themselves like why would we recommend this album you know maybe in just like in a way you know whoever wants to start why would we recommend this this album in a few sentences well one thing i can say maybe not why but how sure i have a friend whose dad is i'm a friend from improv a dad whose dad is like some like hedge fund guy or something and Very he's good. like this is one of his favorite albums because he works out to it yep and i think if you if you sneak it in and then they just are forced to um actually listen to it you know covert ops like whatever gets it in their ears i i think that that actually is uh why you can say that it's accessible because it is yes this is not hard listening this is not like this is not obtuse Um, it's not easy listening but it's not hard to listen to totally not not (laughs) not in context and not um not in 2020 i think for a lot of people it was hard to listen to then yes right 
But, you know, with everything that's come after, it's pretty easy. Musically, maybe not so much lyrically to listen to now. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I, I just would say that it is so dense in its lyrical content that I think it gives a lot of really good jumping off points. It's a great, I think it's a great starter pack for people uh, to listen to it, get into what's actually going on in the lyrics and then learn more about the, the people and movements and, and events that are mentioned in the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with you there. There are certainly references throughout the album that are a little dated. Sure. Um, you know, they talk about like Red Fox and, and, and you sure. know, all these different things that maybe are only that timestamp it. But the overall message has not gone away. It will not go away. And, I, I, you know, it, it's certainly worth breaking down into the lyrics and listening carefully. And then if you got to ask questions, ask questions. If you need to go to Google and have something explained, go to Google and have it explained. I mean, information is at your fingertips. One thing I've been trying to tell people, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about emotional labor yep. on, on Black people. And while... You know, depending on what I view as the intent of the person asking the question, I am more than happy to answer questions from my perspective, while also making sure that person understands that my Black perspective is not the universal Black perspective. Yeah. Um, Which is also just seeing people as whole people. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, But I do think that listening to this album and just knowing what Public Enemy is about and what they stand for, and also understanding that Chuck and the Bomb Squad dudes and, you know, the rest of the band are like middle-class college people, you know, college-educated Black folks, um, you know, which runs counter to the usual narrative that people not versed in hip-hop have about hip-hop, that it's coming from an academic place almost, is super important to to, to tell people. So to end us off today, you know, follow us at all the social media stuff and please uh, contribute to uh, a charity of your choice, uh, you know, uh, as we go through this this movement together. So Public Enemy, under the name Public Enemy Radio, which I think has to do with just several members changing. Yeah. They uh, released a song literally yesterday for Juneteenth that is a wonderful critique of the current Trump era that we are living through that is called State of the Union, Shut the Fuck Up. So we're going to play a minute of it to uh, end this podcast. Uh, That being said, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike Joseph, for being a wonderful guest. Thank you. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. (laughs) And we will see you around like a record. My tail, ask the beta, prime time primo, rhyme time crime, like no other in this lifetime. White House killer, dead in lifelines, broke this joke out, or die trying. Unprecedented, demented, many presidented, Nazi Gestapo, dictator, defendant. It's not what you think, it's what you follow. Run for them jewels, drink from that bottle. Another four years, gonna gut your hollow, gun it out, dried up, broken, can't borrow. Shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. Stay to the union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. Stay to the union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. Stay to the union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker.
kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time.